Welcome to the First Take Podcast with me, Simon King. On this week's episode, Virginia Lee discusses the closely watched FDA ADCOM meeting for Amelix's ALS therapy AMX0035. I look at two major clinical data announcements for the atopic dermatitis drug Lebrukizumab and the potential cancer therapy Tiragolumab. And First Word Health Tech's Tina Tan highlights some notable trends in health tech venture capitalist investments during the first quarter of 2022, ahead of a live event next week for First Word Health Tech subscribers, where she will provide a more comprehensive overview. On Wednesday, an FDA advisory committee convened to discuss Amelix Pharmaceuticals' NDA for their ALS therapy, AMX0035. At the end of the day, the panel voted six to four that data from the phase two Centaur study and its open label extension trial on which Amelix's NDA submission was based were not sufficient to establish the efficacy of AMX0035. Virginia, what was at stake leading up to this meeting? I would say the one big thing at stake this week is the FDA's credibility. Can it make science-driven decisions in the face of significant pressure from patient groups who need new treatment options for a disease that is devastating to patients and their families? So if we go back a step, this NDA for Amelix has been complicated from the start. The company had functional and survival benefit data from the Centaur study, which enrolled 137 patients. And the FDA had originally asked Amelix to conduct a larger phase three study before submission. However, the agency reversed course last year and they ultimately invited Amelix to submit its NDA prior to completion of the ongoing phase three Phoenix study, and they granted Amelix priority review in December. So AMX0035 now has a PDUFA date in late June. And then in the backdrop of all of this was the FDA's controversial approval of Aduhelm for Alzheimer's disease. The agency approved that drug in the face of an overwhelmingly negative advisory committee vote months prior, and there's been plenty of backlash against it since the approval. So a big question leading up to this week's committee meeting was whether that Aduhelm approval would make the FDA more or less likely to exercise regulatory flexibility in the case of AMX0035. You have on one hand, you know, that the only data they have is from this 137 patient study, phase two study, and the open label extension that came after it. On the other hand, ALS is a fatal disease with few treatment options, and there's a lot of pressure from patients and patient advocacy groups to approve the drug, and you could really see it going either way. The Aduhelm approval set a precedent for this kind of flexibility from regulators. However, the backlash against it may actually make the agency more conservative. So where do we think AMX0035 stands after yesterday's discussion and vote? Yeah, so going into the discussion, I think the FDA appeared very much on the fence. Um, In briefing documents published Monday, the agency wrote that AMX0035 appeared relatively safe and well-tolerated, but that the open-label results for the composite survival endpoint were not persuasive. Um, However, they also cited in these briefing documents their ability to exercise regulatory flexibility given the significant unmet need in ALS. 
Um, during the meeting itself, the FDA staff detailed concerns over the conduct and analysis of the Centaur trial. There were questions and concerns about the impact of imbalances between treatment groups, about randomization procedures, and they really got into the weeds about disagreements when it came to the statistical methods that were used in the efficacy analysis. And then the fact that secondary endpoint measures were non-significant did not help Amelix's case. Um, but then, you know, at the afternoon, after all the dust settled on the statistics, we heard testimony from 27 patients and caregivers and patient advocates about the effect that ALS has had on their lives and the need for new treatment options now. And that really put faces to all of the data points that everyone had been discussing earlier in the day. Um, in the end, several committee members themselves said they were on the fence throughout the day. And I think the six to four vote doesn't do much to help the FDA with its decision making. The ball is really in the agency's court now to make a final decision by the end of the quarter. The PDUF date is June 29th. And I, I don't think this week's discussion makes it easy to predict one way or the other. Um, in the meantime, Amelix is going to forge ahead with the Phoenix trial. The data from that phase three study are expected to read out by late 2023 or early 2024. Simon, there were two notable phase three clinical data readouts from big pharma companies this week. What were they and what are the wider implications? So detailed results for Almorol and Eli Lilly's Lebrukizumab in atopic dermatitis were presented at the American Association of Dermatology meeting over the weekend. And these data look pretty good. Now, the benchmark for biologic atopic dermatitis therapies has been set by Sanofi and Regeneron's Dupixent, which is now a gold standard treatment option. The data for Lebrukizumab look broadly comparable. And if you squint, they possibly even look marginally better. Now, whether these will be sufficient to drive a meaningful change in treatment patterns is going to be the key debate uh, leading up to Lebrukizumab's potential approval. Dupixent has not only benefited from a multi-year monopoly as the only novel atopic dermatitis therapy available, but it's a product that physicians really like, uh, one that few patients uh, fail to respond to or have to abandon the use of on clinical grounds. And to drive this point home, Sanofi uh, said at an investor event at the beginning of the week that it now expects Dupixent sales to peak at around $14 billion uh, at the end of the decade. And this is up from a prior forecast of $11 billion. Now, this includes sales from multiple indications, but atopic dermatitis is a big chunk of this. So Sanofi, and I think most people are pretty confident that Dupixent is going to be hard to compete against directly. But on the other hand, given that they expect revenues to grow so strongly over the next eight years or so, and Sanofi says that there's ample room for more penetration of biologics into the atopic dermatitis population, it also means that lebrukizumab could still become you know, a clear multi-billion dollar drug for Almorol and Eli Lilly. It's obviously also good news for patients that physicians have got another choice or will potentially have another, another treatment choice and it could be good for patients if payers look to play to Pixent and Lebrukizumab off against each other on pricing. Uh, you know, in the US, for example, by saying that they will only cover one of the two brands. And some analysts have suggested that this could play out because the data, the clinical data are so similar. I'm slightly skeptical this will happen, though, because although to Pixent and Lebrukizumab are similar types of products, they actually do have different mechanisms of action. 
And the other readout, which was eagerly anticipated, this was in oncology, but not positive. Yeah, so Roche announced the first phase three data for its TIGIT inhibitor tirigolumab by announcing that a study evaluating this drug in combination with its PDL1 inhibitor to centric has failed to improve progression-free survival as a first-line treatment for metastatic extensive stage small cell lung cancer. So there's data from four phase three studies evaluating tirigolumab, which are expected uh, to read out over the course of 2022. And this drug is an important one because it's not only a novel mechanism of action, but it's a potential fourth checkpoint inhibitor in the field of immuno-oncology. So the PD-1 and the PD-L1 inhibitors have been around for some years, as has the CTLA-4 inhibitor, Yervoy. And the FDA recently approved the first LAG-3 inhibitor. And in essence, the hope of drug developers is that by combining these checkpoint inhibitors together, you can either enhance the efficacy of potential or established treatment regimens, or you can expand the proportion of patients who respond to therapy. So in this broader sense, uh, I guess a negative readout from the first phase three trial of tirigolumab is not a particularly great look, but I think there are some caveats that we need to sort of mention. Now, the most advanced work for tirigolumab to date has been in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, where a phase two uh, study has shown that the combination um, of tirigolumab with tocentric is notably more effective in those patients whose tumors express high levels of PDL1, uh, which is a particular biomarker. And that has gone on to inform the design of a phase three study, which is due to read out later this year, which has enrolled only uh, non-small cell lung cancer patients with high levels of, of the PDL1 biomarker. By comparison to that, a much smaller proportion of small cell lung cancer patients are PDL1 positive, or indeed have higher levels uh, of biomarker expression. And similarly, the study that has failed in small cell lung cancer did not use PDL1 status as a criteria for enrollment. I think it's probably also worth flagging that small cell lung cancer is a more aggressive and harder to treat disease as well. You know, moving forward, I think if you speak to key opinion leaders, most think that the non-small cell lung cancer data will be positive. But I think, uh, you know, caveating it the other way, I think it's fair to say that enthusiasm for TIGIT as a mechanism uh, of action as a target has waned somewhat over the past couple of years, because in the near term, at least, I think its applicability could be fairly limited. And perhaps until, you know, a more suitable biomarker is identified. For example, according to experts that were interviewed by our Therapy Trends team uh, recently, despite this small cell lung cancer uh, trial um, failing to, to meet its primary endpoints, there are some patients with small cell lung cancer who've responded extraordinarily well to the tirigolumab and to centric combination, but oncologists are yet to identify what sets these patients apart and why they are responding to the treatment in such a fashion. I'm joined again this week by my colleague, Tina Tan from First Word Health Tech. Tina, I know you keep a close eye on venture capitalist investments in the health tech space. What have been the most notable trends 
uh, in the health tech VC scene since the start of 2022? Hi, Simon. Um, I think before we talk about 2022, it's important to provide a bit of context first. So digital health, as you can imagine, is an incredibly hot space for venture investors. So people have seen the surge in demand for digital technologies to move healthcare forward. And yes, the pandemic was a major driver of this demand. And um, in 2021, last year, we recorded uh, that the total amount of venture dollars raised by health tech companies was well over $37 billion. That's a lot of money. And much of this came from what we call mega rounds. Those are the deals that raised over $100 million. And uh, last year, there were over 110 of those mega rounds which made up roughly two thirds of the total $37 billion I mentioned before. So the biggest round of all, just to you know, give you some sort of comparison, was a $1.2 billion fundraise. That's a single fundraise by Devoted Health, which is a bit like a, an insure tech virtual primary care provider combined. So that's a pretty high benchmark that 2021 set for venture investing in health tech. So what about 2022? Have VC investments during the first quarter met your expectations in terms of broader trends in the sector? Or indeed, have there been any announcements that have you know, caught you by surprise? Well, 2022 started off really well. In January, we recorded over 90 venture financing deals. That's well over the monthly average deal volume for 2021. So the monthly average deal volume then was 65 deals. And uh, in total, in January alone, uh, over $4.2 billion was raised. That's not far off from 2021's best performing month, which was May, and that had over $4.7 billion. So which are the areas that are getting interest from investors? Um, last year was about technologies that enable virtual primary care. And also people really interested in virtual behavioral and mental health um, platforms. So what we're seeing now, and I think we'll continue to see through the year, is that this, this um, interest in virtual care will start moving into more specialized areas. So let's say within behavioral health, we're seeing deepening interest in pediatric behavioral health, you know, digital care models for children with ADHD, autism, et cetera. And in primary care, um, investors are seeing opportunity in virtual primary care targeted at specific demographics and, and communities. So the elderly or LGBTQ community or, you know, certain underserved ethnic populations. I think we'll definitely see more of these trends um, as, as, as the year moves on. So you've talked about January. What about the rest of the quarter? Yeah, right. So February is a shorter month. And, um, you know, the deal volume and uh, deal value did simmer down a bit from, from January because it was short of those few days. I mean, that said, in March, um, it's not over yet. I can tell you things do look like they have picked up quite quickly, you know, after that February lull. I, I don't really want to say too much now, Simon, as I'm going to presenting, um, I'm going to be presenting our Q1 venture deal findings at our IEV live event on Wednesday, next week on April the 6th. I'm just giving a little plug now. And uh, it's exclusive to First Word Health Tech Plus subscribers, where they can learn more about the VC deal flow trends and also what's been happening in the digital health MA scene. 
Thanks, Tina. As Tina mentioned, she'll be presenting a more comprehensive overview of health tech venture capitalist investments during the first quarter of 2022 at a live event for First Word Health Tech Plus subscribers next week. If you are interested and a subscriber, please do sign up. And if you want to find out more um, about how to become a Plus subscriber, visit www.firstwordhealthtech.com for more details.